Hello and welcome back to Commish Talks. In today's episode, Josh sat down with Wes Circle, a sports lawyer at Gutwine Law. In the show, they shared a conversation about league governance in NASCAR and esports, as well as the uncertainty involved with the future of the esports community. We hope you enjoy. Wes, welcome to Commish Talks. Uh, Wes, in full disclosure to our listeners, you and I are colleagues, both practicing sports law at Gutwine Law. Uh, We also have another podcast we do for the law firm, so this will kind of riff off of that, and uh, we have really good synergy, so I'm excited for today. Wes, for our audience, I'll give a brief, and then you can kind of take us through your lineage and how you got here today, but Wes has been a sports lawyer for a long time, very involved in motorsports. I'm a tremendous fan of Wes. Wes does great legal work, and he is very insightful as to how sports produce revenue, how governance is constructed and generally how things tick within sports. So with that, Wes, give us a little bit about your background. First of all, I'm humbled by that. Thank you. I appreciate it. So um, I'll give a brief synopsis of my career that, you know, I'm approached by law students. will say, well, how do I get into sports law? And, and I'll give them my random story. So you represent Marilyn Monroe and James Dean. That's how you do it. Uh, no. So let me, let me back up a tiny bit. I was representing a, a buddy's band a friend from high school who was a drummer and uh, they had a crappy cover band, but you know, they were good enough and I helped them get some gigs. Frequent, and- frequent listeners of this show too. Hopefully not, but anyways, go ahead. <laughs> and so I was doing that and I came across a, a posting uh, for a, a, a legal clerkship at an agency called CMG worldwide. And I applied randomly and it just so happened that the general counsel was himself a, a former professional musician. So I think I had that on my cover letter and, and we met and we just hit it off talking about what a pain musicians are in, in, the, in the industry as it were. And, and I started working at, at CMG worldwide and uh, they didn't have any room for me. So I, I occupied the corner office from the former corporate counsel. And I, I joke, I took the job by adverse possession because eventually I, I got that job. And then this was back in, I'm going to date myself, the early 2000s, probably 2001. And we were licensed administrator for Evernham Motorsports. Ray Evernham was Jeff Gordon's crew chief when they won all the championships. So through that process, I got to know uh, their team and, the, and uh, the motorsports world fairly well. Started working on some other deals. I did the Aerosmith car in the Indy 500. Oh, gosh, what year was that? But if you go way back when they did the Just Push Play album uh, that was pink with a robot on the cover and, and we turned that into a race car and, and Steven Tyler sang a national anthem and made everybody angry uh, when he changed the words to the land of the free and the home of the Indy 500. Yeah. Um, so that was my first real motorsports deal. But through there, I, I, I connected with uh, the CEO of a little agency called JMI and um, they had just broken the spirits barrier in NASCAR and had convinced NASCAR that their roots as moonshine runners was actually a really fun story and they shouldn't be ashamed of it. So they should therefore consider uh, some spirit sponsors in the right conditions. And so they got crown royal into racing. The, the, the CEO hired me and I spent the next 12 years at that company, went from a little company to a, to a large company, an international company having offices all over the world, opening offices in uh, Canada and, and England Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, uh, probably forgetting something. Oh, Cologne, Germany, uh, and uh, and doing that for a long time and having a great time. So, 
uh, those 12 years is where I, I really learned the blocking and tackling of the sports industry and learned from one of the best. My, my boss back in the day, his name is Zach Brown. He is now the chief executive officer of McLaren Formula One. So he's done okay too. So pretty good. And very brief. That's how you get into sports law, everybody. Yeah. And I always tell people there's no one path because my path uh, took me through bankruptcy at the end <laughs> from sports to bankruptcy to law practice to sports back to law practice. So <laughs> it's interesting how it all operates. Wes, yeah, one sure. thing I want to tackle today, and I think it's of interest to our listeners, is how motorsports maybe versus traditional team sports are governed. And I'll mm. give a little background, which will tee you up. Traditional team sports we've talked about on this podcast are typically 501c6 or unincorporated associations uh, where ownership owns a team, right? So they're, you know, let's take the NBA, the Chicago Bulls, Timberwolves, Lakers all have a vote. They have a vote and they sit on the board of governors. They cede certain powers to a commissioner, which then operates the league and primarily governs whatever their bylaws say that the commissioner can govern and the re reservation uh, or the balance, I should say, of those other duties are given to the board to mm -hmm. help guide the league. That's how typical leagues are run. There's some variances, you know, uh, USL is a franchise system run like a typical franchise. Talk to us and our listeners about motorsports. I think that's a little bit of enigma out there of how motorsports are operated. And it may be surprising to some people if I say something like NASCAR is a club. So let me explain. Way back a long time ago, uh, the FIA started. I won't try to pronounce what it stands for because it's French, but everybody knows it as the FIA. The FIA is the global governing body of motorsport. And I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I can say that I asked somebody in the know one time and I said, how did the FIA, you know, I said, I think I actually said, you know, who died and made them king of the world. And the story I got was that early in motor racing, they were able to obtain an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London and able to put in uh, to play safety protocols that maintain that insurance. And so if you are a member of the FIA, you could be insured. And that's how FIA became the tip of the spear for all of motorsports. So literally every professional morning or, uh, motorsport organization on the planet ties into FIA. In the United States, the path to the FIA flows through a group called ACUS, A-C-C-U-S. Under ACUS are various clubs that you may have heard of, NASCAR, IndyCar, NHRA, uh, SCCA, the Sport Car Club of America are all member clubs of ACUS. Now, ACUS has a lot of authority. The reason is because uh, most European uh, sport, uh, motorsport leagues race on road courses and, um, and streets. So you're looking at a, a style of racing that has lots of curves and, and um, a particular style of racing that takes a lot of turns. Americans are really, really good at turning left. And so we do a lot of that in American motorsport. The uh, FIA has no particular expertise in how to turn left. And so ACUS has a lot of authority to govern motorsport in the United States. And so all of the rules of, uh, of American motorsport are really governed by ACUS and eventually by, by the FIA. So what does it mean to be a club? Well, it means that you've been uh, endorsed or sanctioned in a way that you can have independent professional motorsports. So NASCAR 
is an organization that has a particular style of racing governed by a particular set of rules. IndyCar is the same way. NHRA, which is drag racing, is another example. So pick on NASCAR, for instance. NASCAR as an organization is simply a sanctioning body. Okay, they say we are going to put on races and promoters um, can pay us a fee and we'll bring our traveling circus to your race. In order to participate in NASCAR as a team, you have to abide by a certain set of rules and safety standards that they set forward. In order to be a NASCAR track, it's the same thing. You have to have a certain amount of safety standards and, and uh, elements in place to host a NASCAR event. All of the uh, organizations that participate in motorsport are independent. Everybody's a for-profit enterprise. They're not necessarily profitable, but they're all a for-profit enterprise. NASCAR is in it to make money. Uh, so no, uh, no, no charitable organizations for us, Josh. Um, so question, because that's a debatable thing, even in what I described, whether they're not for profit, uh, who owns NASCAR? The France family. And what's the corporate, is it a C corp? Gosh, well, it's a corporation. It's a corporation. I don't know how it sits today. So NASCAR itself was private. They also were a major stakeholder in what's called ISC which uh, owned a bunch of tracks. ISC was publicly traded about a year ago. Uh, NASCAR purchased the stock of ISC. And so NASCAR now owns 60% of its tracks. And SMI. Who owns, who owns SMI, NASCAR? Uh, the France family owns NASCAR. So now they okay. own about a bunch of those tracks. SMI is another group. Um, uh, Bruton Smith and his son own another group. And then you have some independents. Indianapolis Motor Speedway is an independent. Uh, Pocono is an independent. There's a few other. I think Kentucky isn't. Yeah, Kentucky should be independent. A handful of independent tracks that are authorized to run NASCAR races. How many races does each track have a year? Depends on the track. So uh, Daytona has, uh, uh, back in the day, had something like 550 track days. And you think, well, how does that work for 365 days in a year? Well, they had more, one, more than one event happening at any given time on many days. Uh, they're very big facilities. But we hear about the one event, primarily about, non-race fans, right? That's right. That's right. Daytona 500, and then the, the, what we call second Daytona later on in the year. So it really all depends on the track. Indianapolis doesn't have that many, uh, I think right now, maybe eight or eight or ten hmm. uh, right now. It just depends on what they what they want to do. So it's up to each individual track. Obviously, they have a lot of overhead they have to cover. But in the case of Indianapolis, the race is big enough. They only have to do a few races. Yeah. They can make Who, a lot of money. Who owns NHRA? NHRA is a, I'm trying to think who owns that. Um, I'll, I'll pass on that. I can't remember anymore. That's fair. If you ask me like who owns every team, I, I wouldn't know either. Um, this is all fascinating. So, so different than team sports in terms of they are for-profit corporations. Now, Wes, I'm going to like flip the script a little bit. Talk to us about esports and how esports is set up because that's a whole other animal as well. Right. I have argued that the problem with eSport is it doesn't have a structure like FIA. Okay. There is no central governing body that dictates how all of this works. So, so back up. So the FIA, the reason why they're powerful in motorsport is because they have a set of safety protocols uh, to ensure that the sports, that the sport is safe. And you go down to how the walls are constructed and how the chassis have to be, you know, the seat belts and literally hundreds and hundreds of pages. There is no such governing body over eSport that sets a basic set of standards for what is fair competition, how to treat athletes, how to host an event. 
And so in the case of esports, it is literally anybody who can somehow obtain a license to play a game publicly can put on an esport event. Okay. And that's one of the very the key differences you're going to see in esport versus any other sport on earth, right? If you and I, Josh, want to go start a competitor to the NFL, we can do it. Nobody owns American football. Okay. However, if figuratively. You want, figuratively. figuratively. <laughs> but if you want to play Call of Duty, you have to get a license to play Call of Duty. It's a copyright. Right. So if you want to have what's called a public performance of a, of a copyright, you have to have a license. And so not everybody can get together and say, we're going to be a Call of Duty team. And, and that's why Activision Blizzard has become such an 800 pound gorilla. They're trying to be the NFL of eSports. Right. They control their titles. And then that's why I'll say, Josh, you, there's a there's a disparity in how these different teams treat their players. Some are treated very well. Some are basically indentured servants. And the lifespan of these players can be pretty short. Um, you know, based how, I mean, look at how fast, if you have kids, how fast the, their tastes change from game to game to game. And so, you know, two years ago, my son played nothing but Fortnite. I don't think he's touched it in months. Now the new season sucks. That's what scares me about esports is there is no one controlling where the next publisher will come from, what mm -hmm. the next brand will come from. So I can become an expert or make a huge investment in Fortnite, Call of Duty, although I know that's many generations down the road now and very established but it can literally dissipate like that. Whereas opposed to take another example, major league baseball been around for a hundred years. It's not going anywhere. The That's NFL right. is not going anywhere. And the competitors that keep popping up, they may survive in some form, but you're never going to approach what the NFL has already captured. So that's what scares me about esports is it can literally be created digitally and pushed out to consoles throughout the country and it can be born out of a product. If you talk about NFL, NBA, NASCAR, the infrastructure required to compete with them is extreme, an extremely high hurdle. So it's almost impossibly high. Mm -hmm. Wes, drill into esports, how the money flows too, because as opposed to mm -hmm. team sports, where it's the owners and the players, now you've got the publisher, the owners, the players, and then sponsorship is a whole other world within those three entities. So walk us through that. Sure. Well, it, again, it depends on title, but let's pick on a couple of big ones that, that folks may have heard of because the prize pools are so big, but you may, may have heard of uh, the League of Legends World Championships having a prize pool of like $50 million or something to that effect, right? Well, the publisher isn't putting up that money, nor is the sponsor. So what happens is over the course of a, of a tournament, which, which several months, um, players enter into microtransactions with the publisher to obtain enhancements and skins and, and some things that give them strategic advantage, some things that just make them feel better about the way they play the game. Something like 50% of those microtransactions goes into the prize pool. And so the more popular the game, the, the larger the prize pool. And so when you hear about these enormous prize packages, a lot of that is coming, is, is self-funded through the, the gaming community. On the, on the way through the, the championships. They have put their own money in. The publisher, uh, who most times is the promoter, will, will get the other, the other piece of that. Sponsors are fascinating. And I still, you know, Josh, it's funny. Um, you will remember uh, back when I started in NASCAR, it was like an embarrassment of riches, right? You know, we open up the floodgates and like, okay, Home Depot sponsors Tony Stewart. Lowe's is going to sponsor Jimmy Johnson, right? You know, Subway's in, Jimmy John's is in. It's like my competitor's doing it, boom, you know. And everybody was in, and eSports started to do that. 
and I'm, I'm seeing it start to slow down because everybody's like, first esports, let's do things. But now they're like, well, what's the value proposition? What are we getting out of this? Marketers have become uh, rightfully so more picky and, and they're, they're very metric based. And, and they, again, it's the lack of the structure of what is esport and air quotes makes it difficult in my opinion, because I used to represent marketers, it makes it, it makes it difficult to sell the value proposition. What are we actually selling? Are we selling eyeballs? Are we selling, uh, are we selling like impressions? The amount of time people spend, say, on Twitch. We, what are we, you know, what are we selling, and what are we conversely buying as, as a sponsor? So that piece of the model, I think, is is unclear. Obviously, you're going to see big sponsors sponsor big events because there's people in the stadium and eyeballs. But by and large, there's not a. I'm not seeing a ton of sponsorship money flowing for your regional tournaments. Yeah, I would say so. A few things about sponsorship in general that I've learned. One is sponsorship brings to life the things you love. Mm. And I think in esports, it's easy to deliver eyeballs because there's literally access to watch these things, YouTube and whatever. But like, what experience are you really getting through the sponsor? So it'll be like this Fortnite game brought to you by McDonald's. That's cool. In arena stuff, easy to say this experience brings to life. But, you know, the actual activation of the sponsorship package through esports is still baffling to me about and that's the experience. Uh, experiential activation. I've not seen anything yet that seems really sticky and compelling. Some of the best, um, I should say, value you're seeing coming out of the sport is we, we, he's he's the guy is Ninja, right? I mean, Ninja switches from Twitch to Mixer, and suddenly people go and they they publish on on Mixer. Um, he switches to uh, Omega Chairs. You know what? I tried to buy one or pandemic. I can't buy one. They're back ordered for months. <laughs> Right. So it's a very kind of more of an endorsement play than it is a, a general sponsorship play. Hey, podcast fans. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Commission Talks. If you enjoyed it or have any feedback for us, be sure to reach out to Josh on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.